Let's read together from the Hutterberg Catechism, Lord's Day 6. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, later yet it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you under financial pressure? Are you struggling to make ends meet? Doesn't it seem like we're often just that little bit short at the end of the month? Don't you sometimes feel like you're a slave of the banks? And does that put pressure on you? Perhaps you're not in such circumstances right now. But debt and financial pressure can create a great amount of stress in our lives. Thus, the Bible often compares our sins to the debt we owe God. It raises the question, do our sins put the same pressure on us as our financial debts? Do we struggle with our sins? Do they cause us grief and frustration? And if not, why not? Isn't our inherent slavery to sin much worse than any financial debt we might owe? In Lord's Day 5, again, speaking about our deliverance, having come to the realization that we are sinful people who deserve God's wrath, we learn that God's justice requires payment to be made for our sins. Last week, our focus was on the fact that we cannot pay, and no other creature can pay for us appeared like we had come to a dead end. And yet God found a way. Lord's Day 5 revealed to us the manner of our salvation. We needed a special sort of mediator and deliverer, one who was a true and righteous man, and who was at the same time true God. Having learned about the way of salvation, this afternoon we turn to see the person who saves us. He is indeed unique. 
Nowhere in all of creation was there a person like this. One who was truly man, so he could pay for man's sins. One who was at the same time true God, so he could bear the burden of God's wrath against our sins. Yet the Lord God provided exactly this sort of mediator for us. We know him as our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God has revealed himself. That's how God has revealed him to us in his word. I preach you God's word under the following theme. Christ came into this world to serve as our Redeemer. We'll see what Christ came to redeem us from, how he could serve as our Redeemer, and why we are to worship this Redeemer. When the Lord gave the people of Israel the land of Canaan as their inheritance, he didn't want any of them to be slaves. The Lord had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He wanted them to live in the freedom that he had provided for them. As their Redeemer, the Lord wanted his people to experience his rich blessings in their lives. Not just in that first generation, but also their children and their grandchildren throughout the generations. God wanted them to experience his covenantal blessings that they might thank and praise him for all his one for all his words and works. In many societies, you soon see the development of classes. You end up having the rich and the poor, those who have and those who don't. It often happens that those who have buy up more and more property, and those who don't are forced to sell the little bit that they have. And in the end, you have a group of rich landowners who use the poor as slaves to further their own ends. The Lord did not want his people to fall, to fall into that kind of slavery again. They had suffered more than 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God had redeemed them with his mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He wanted them to live as free people. And so the Lord made special laws with respect to land ownership in Israel. Under Joshua, the Lord divided the land into areas belonging to each of the 12 tribes. Within each tribe, each family and each household was apportioned a specific parcel of land. This land was given to this family in perpetuity. An example of this is seen in that Naboth rightly refused to sell his parcel of land to King Ahab. It was the inheritance of his fathers. He had no right to sell what God had given to his family as their land throughout the generations. Now, it could happen that a man fell upon hard times. In such a situation, what could he do? His only asset might be his land. Was he then not allowed to sell it to get out of debt? No, he couldn't. Because the land didn't really belong to him. It belonged to the Lord God himself. The Lord retained final ownership over the land. In today's terms, we would say that God owned it 
and that he gave it to his people as a long-term lease. The point is that God's people did not have the right to do whatever they felt like doing with the land. They were privileged to use it, but they had to do so under the conditions of the covenant that the Lord had made with them. While the people were not allowed to buy and sell the land itself, the Lord did make provision for times when his people might be faced with financial difficulties. In such situations, God allowed them to sublease the land to a fellow Israelite. The way that this worked was that the land was valued according to a set price for each year it was to be sublet. If a man faced financial hardship and needed some cash, he could sublease his land to another for the remaining number of years before the year of Jubilee. What this meant is that he would receive an amount of money in proportion to the number of years remaining till the year of Jubilee. If a lease on the land was worth $5,000 a year and there were 20 years remaining until the year of Jubilee, he would receive $100,000. This money would then have to support him until the land was returned to him in the year of Jubilee. God's law required that every 50th year, all the land be returned to the families to whom he had given it as an inheritance. And so we see that the Lord made a special provision in his law that allowed those in need to sublease their land. How gracious God was in making special provisions for the redemption of the poor and needy. If they were in financial strife, they were allowed to sublease their land. But only till the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year was set aside as the year of Jubilee. In that year, the trumpet was to be blown. Liberty was proclaimed throughout the land. In that year, every family was allowed to return to the inheritance God gave to their family. All outstanding debts were wiped out. Everyone had the opportunity to make a new start. So the Lord provided redemption for his people. Imagine for a moment, beloved, the impact that these laws had on a poor, destitute Israelite. He might be in a position where he's forced to sell his land in order to pay his debts. He might be in a position where he and his family had to serve as slaves in the household of another. Such a person could easily lose hope. Living anywhere other than Israel, he might despair. What kind of future was there for him? No matter how hard he worked, he'd never be able to secure either his freedom or that of his children. Might as well give up and die. But not so in Israel. For the Lord God is a gracious God, a God of mercy. He had provided redemption for his people in the past and he would do so again. Redemption was something codified into the law. Every 50th year, God granted a year of jubilee, a time when all those forced into slavery were set free, a time when all outstanding debts were wiped out, a time when each family's inheritance was returned to them, a time of rejoicing, of celebration, a time of thanking and praising God for the deliverance he provided for all those in need. Beloved, these laws with respect to the year of Jubilee foreshadowed something far greater than the redemption of the poor and the needy. Although the year of Jubilee provided relief from financial debts, 
It did not do anything more than that. The people of Israel's greater need was not met by this legislation. They could be restored from slavery and returned to a position of favor, but only in a material way, not spiritually. For the laws about the year of Jubilee did not make provision for the payment of their sins. And that's what was required for God's people to truly be restored to God's favor. You see, beloved, we are like the poor, destitute man who owed much and who had nothing with which to pay his debt. Our sins are an offense to the majesty of God Most High. And our sins keep piling up. Daily, our debt grows. God requires that payment be made for our sins. His justice requires it. God will not grant a year of jubilee every 50 years and just wipe the slate clean. His justice demands that satisfaction be made for our sins. Someone has to pay for them. The good news of salvation is that the year of Jubilee pointed forward to a far greater deliverance than from financial debts. When Isaiah spoke to the children of God, he prophesied of a special person who would come to provide redemption for Israel. In Isaiah 61, he wrote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what that year of the Lord's favor is? It's a reference to the year of Jubilee. Do you know who it was that would proclaim this year? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 4, we we read about how Jesus stood up to read in the synagogue at Nazareth. He read those first verses of Isaiah 61. Then he sat down. And when the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, Jesus said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ our Lord is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. He came to preach good tidings to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to release the oppressed. Do you know what that good news was? What that release from oppression consisted of? You know the kind of freedom that Christ provided? He came to make payment for our sins, to clear that great debt that each of us has incurred before the throne of God. Christ came to redeem us from our sins, that we might live joyous and thankful lives in communion with our God. Beloved, we've got something to be really happy about. Imagine that you were in the first years of paying off the mortgage on your house, and someone came along and paid off the balance of your mortgage together with all the other loans you have outstanding at the bank. How happy would you then be? Well, Jesus Christ has done much more than that. 
He made a payment we could never make. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Certainly we have a lot to be thankful for in the redemption that Christ Jesus our Lord has provided for us. In our first point, we've seen what Christ came to redeem us from. In our second point, we'll see how we could serve as our Redeemer. In our society today, you can get many things made according to order. Think, for example, of a kitchen. If you're building a house, you can get a cabinet maker to build you a kitchen. It's got to fit such and such specifications. If the cabinet maker builds your cabinets too big, they will not fit into your kitchen. If they're too small, they'll leave behind an awkward, empty place. Now with kitchen cabinets, you've got some leeway. If they're a quarter inch out, you probably get away with it. But there's certain things in life that have to be made exactly according to their specifications. Imagine that for some reason you needed an artificial limb, maybe a leg from the knee down. If it doesn't fit precisely, it's going to cause you great discomfort. If it's a quarter inch out of length, you'll have difficulty walking on it. It has to fit correctly, otherwise it will not do its job. My point with these examples is that as our Redeemer, Christ was precisely qualified to do the job. We needed a mediator and deliverer of a special kind to redeem us from our sins. He had to be a true man, he had to be a righteous man, and at the same time he had to be true God. If he did not meet those qualifications, he would be unable to save us. Saviors of this kind are not readily available in this world. Yet when it appeared there was no one to do the job, God provided a Redeemer for us. Jesus Christ is the only one who is qualified to be our mediator. In him we see the wonderful counsel and the plan of God coming to fulfillment. For from before the foundation of the world, God has ordained that his son would serve as our redeemer. God appointed him as our mediator and deliverer. God qualified him for this task by allowing him to take on our human flesh. So he could be a true and righteous man as well as being true God. Beloved, for Christ to serve as our mediator, he had to be a true man. The reason for this is that it's only a man who could pay for a man's sins. God's justice is such, he will not allow another creature to pay for man's sins. We as human beings were the ones who first sinned in paradise. And so our just God requires that a human being pay for our sins. Up front, that does not appear to be a difficult requirement to fulfill. And the world's filled with people 
Perhaps it would be possible for one of them to step forward and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That way you'd have a human being paying for man's sins. But there was a snag. For someone to pay for our sins, he had to be righteous and holy. He'd have to be perfect. If he was not, he would not be able to pay for his own sins, never mind the sins of others. We see a good example of this in the life of Moses. When Israel sinned at Mount Horeb with the golden calf, Moses went up on the mountain to mediate for the people. He pleaded with the Lord to be gracious to his people and to forgive their sins. Moses even offered to have his name blotted out of the book of life, if only God would grant grace to his people. But God refused to hear of it. Although Moses is referred to in the Bible as the man of God, he was not without sin. He could not make the payment that God required. One who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. There's one further qualification that anyone wishing to serve as our Redeemer had to fulfill. Not only did he have to be a true and righteous man, he also had to be true God. The only way for the gap between God and us to be bridged was for the mediator to make full payment for our sins. That's the only way in which we could be restored to God's favor. To make that payment, our Redeemer had to be God. So he could bear the burden of God's wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Bearing God's wrath involved suffering the punishment for sin. It involved the most severe punishment imaginable. Suffering the everlasting punishment of body and soul. It involved being totally rejected by God, being cut off from his grace and love. It's a burden too heavy for any mere person to carry. We would wilt under the pressure of being handed over to Satan and his hellish agony. We'd do anything, I mean anything, to escape from that. And so we see that our Redeemer had to be a true and righteous man. He also had to be true God in order to be able to save us from our sins. In Philippians 2, Paul writes about how Jesus Christ came into this world to serve as our Redeemer. Paul notes that Christ was, in his very nature, God. But that did not stop our Lord from humbling himself. Christ willingly gave up his divine prerogatives he laid aside his heavenly glory and majesty. He took on the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of men. Christ assumed our human nature. He became exactly like us, except that he was without sin. Christ did that so he could serve as our Redeemer in him. And only in him do we find the qualifications necessary to secure our redemption. It brings us to our final point, and it will see why we are to worship our Redeemer. In Philippians 2, Paul not only explains how Christ had the qualifications to serve as our Redeemer, 
He also tells us what Christ did for us. Paul writes that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's in that act that our Lord made the payment required of us. As a true and righteous man, he bore the wrath of God against all our sins. He suffered the agony and the torment of hell during the hours of darkness on the cross. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, beloved, Christ has paid the full price for our sins, the price required to deliver us from them, the price required to restore us to God's favor. In him, the year of Jubilee finds its fulfillment. In him, the acceptable year of the Lord has come. Christ has set us free from slavery to sin and death and hell. He has restored us to righteousness and life. Already now, we may live in communion with God. And in the life to come, God will dwell with us on new heavens and a new earth. Do you know what God's response was to that awesome work of redemption accomplished by his Son? Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has glorified his Son. He has set him at his right hand. He has given him authority and dominion over all things. Do you know what our response should be to the glorious salvation work of Christ our Savior? We are to bow down before him in reverence and awe. To adore him for his mighty work of redemption on our behalf. To shout forth his name as the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer the one who has paid for our sins, the one who has restored us to God's favor. That's why we worship him. Amen.